How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Intubation is easy. And I, I don't want to underestimate the challenges with airway management, but bag valve mask is far more difficult than intubation. Hello, EMS World listeners. This is Ginger Locke from the Medic Mindset Podcast. And today I'm talking with EMS Medical Director, Dr. Jeff Jarvis. We discuss his January 2019 EMS World article called The Perils of Peri-Intubation Hypoxia. I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to ask him a few questions about that article and for listeners to hear a portion of it read in his own voice with his Texas accent and all. We start with the discussion. Dr. Jarvis, thanks for agreeing to let me ask you some questions about your article called The Perils of Peri-Intubation Hypoxia. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And that title, by the way, I can't really claim credit for. There was someone who likes alliteration even more than I do at EMS World. Who is it? I don't know. So I submitted the article with some terribly academic title. And when it got published, it got published as The Perils of Peri-Intubation Hypoxia. I love that. Yeah. Because I love alliteration as well. In the article, you mentioned that you wanted to, the, the words you used were changing the culture around intubating non-arrest patients. Can you say more about the specific changes you made so other departments might follow? Absolutely. We run into this culture both in the emergency department and in the field. So I intubate in the emergency department exactly like I ask my paramedics to intubate in the field. And I get resistance when I do it in the emergency department. And I've had people come right out and tell me, nurses, respiratory therapists, doctors, everyone tells me, Jeff, what you're doing is a pain in the ass. It's so much easier to just intubate the patient. Well, yeah, it is easier. It's just not in the best interest of the patient. And we didn't sign up to this gig because we thought it would be easy. We signed up for this gig because we wanted to help people and we wanted to make a difference in their lives. Creating hypoxia, even if it's for a short period in select patients, is bad and we can prevent it if we take a little more time. I saw that resistance in the emergency department. I was very concerned we were going to see that in the field. When I rolled this out, I knew that there was going to be some resistance. So there's resistance, number one, because we hate change. Everybody fears change. I think that's just a natural thing for all of us. We don't like new stuff. I wanted to overcome that resistance, and that's the culture that I was talking about. The way that we overcame that is we got a, a group of our more experienced medics who, one, would be very good, would understand the physiology and the science behind this, but also might be more likely to resist if they don't understand the rationale. Hmm. So we brought them in and we explained the rationale. Part of what we did was actually show them the data files of what happens as we're intubating, what happens to the pulse oximetry, the heart rate, the blood pressure as we go through this. And as the patient is getting more and more hypoxic during the intubation attempt, that period where when we're looking at the graph of all the data files, we see entitled CO2 go to zero, which makes sense because they're not breathing. We see that they're doing the intubation attempt and their SATs are dropping and dropping and dropping. 
part of the problem is if you ask someone who hasn't gone through this and doesn't know the literature, hey, do your patients get hypoxic when you intubate them? Well, of course not. That's what happens to other people. I am great. It's not that they're lying. It's not that they're being conceited. Humans just aren't really good at perceiving this. And as a matter of fact, there was a study that looked at patients in the emergency department who are undergoing RSI, and they had a direct observer who watched the monitor. After the intubation, they asked the intubating physician, hey, did the patient get hypoxic during the attempt? They did like 100 intubations. They said, no, it's like uh, they were thinking 30-ish percent, and it was actually almost double that that actually became hypoxic. With hypoxia being defined as what? Under 90%. Okay. So they weren't aware that it was happening. They also, by the way, thought to the extent that they did think it was there, they thought it was about half as long as it actually was. John Gonzalez, who works with me in Williamson County at Clinical Practice, uh, he and I pulled our data and we looked at it. Before we went through this training, we reported peri-intubation hypoxia occurring less than 1% of the time. But when we actually looked at the data files, it was occurring 44% of the time. We went through the training to make everybody aware of this. And we looked at the data again, and the perceived proportion of hypoxia was 7%. The actual, and this was awesome, this just makes my little educator heart beat, the actual was less than that. It was six. So they were perceiving more hypoxia than was actually there. But there was a profound difference because they're now aware of it. So the main way that we, in addition to bringing in people who are outstanding clinicians, very experienced in the unofficial leaders of the system... We brought them in and got them engaged and buying into this process early. And then when we rolled it out, I sat there the first day that I was giving this lecture. I showed case after case after case after case after case where the patient was getting hypoxia. And I, I put up the HPI. No one else knew who took care of that patient and who did the intubation. But I promise you the medic who did it did know. They remembered I was hitting this really, really hard because I was expecting that culture, um, that hurdle. And halfway through the lecture, I decided to back way off because I saw very experienced medics in the back crying. So there is still a little bit of resistance from time to time because it is more difficult than just slamming the tube in. But now as a system, I think we really buy into this notion that we need to resuscitate before we intubate. Regarding that resistance, the resistance that I've heard, I wanted to kind of give you a scenario of when I've talked to medics about this philosophy that you have, the one that you're trying to push out. When I talk to them about it, they give me different scenarios and it's always like, well, what, what oh, about yeah. this patient? What, what about? Yeah. That's what resistance looks like, by the way. Mm -hmm. That's That's what happens. So you'll always, if you don't want to believe something, you will always find a case where it's not the right thing to do. And to be clear, there probably are some examples of it, but they're few and far in between, and I don't think they justify the vast majority of time where we're going to be doing damage by intubating hypoxic patients. So imagine you have a patient that's been pulled from a car wreck. They have head trauma. They're unresponsive. They're apneic. They have pulses. First time they throw on the pulse ox, the SATs are in the 80s, maybe low 80s. We know that hypoxia is incredibly dangerous. In the context of TBI, somewhere, there's a medic listening right now to that patient. In their mind, they're thinking, the first thing I want to do is get this patient intubated and get their SATs up because we hate hypoxia. Yeah. In their mind, the intubation is the very thing that's going to fix their hypoxia. Right. 
How do you bend their brain a little bit? And by the way, it's not just paramedics. I've had my colleagues in the emergency department, my physician colleagues say exactly the same thing. Well, the only way I'm going to be able to get the saturations up is by intubating them. What I will tell them is, well, if you think about it, there are other ways that we can effectively raise the oxygen saturation. If the patient is deeply obtunded, we can put an oral pharyngeal airway in or nasal pharyngeal airways. We can use a bag valve mask at high flow oxygen. We can add a nasal cannula. We could do these things easily. They're well within our skill set, and they're very effective at getting the saturations up. The reason that they're not effective is because we don't use them very well. Now, if you think about this, what does an endotracheal tube add that a BVM doesn't, an effectively used BVM? It adds dead space. The piece of plastic, that 80ET tube, doesn't generate oxygen. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, no special lining that allows the oxygen going in to be magnified and have more of an effect. It prevents against aspiration. That's really it. If you can ventilate with an ET tube, then you can probably ventilate with a bag valve mask appropriately utilized with the patient ramped in good position, lifting the mandible up into the mask instead of pushing the mask down onto the mandible. Because when you think about it, when you do that, you're actually occluding the airway. When you do those things, you're actually effectively able to raise the saturation and prepare the patient for safer intubation. I'm not saying don't intubate them. I'm saying go ahead and intubate them, but do it in a safe fashion. And in the article, you expound on that, and we won't go into it here with in our discussion because in the article that you're going to read, um, they'll hear really the details of what you call sexy bagging. The article, actually a large percentage of it is how to use a BVM well. Intubation is easy. And I, I don't want to underestimate the challenges with airway management, but bag valve mask is far more difficult than intubation particularly when you're using these hyperacute angled video laryngoscopes, it is way easier now than it has been in the past. Using a bag valve effectively is just as difficult as it's always been. The challenge is that we have to admit that we have a problem. Step number one in airway management anonymous. Did you just come up with that? I think I did just then. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you for your time answering these questions. I think you do a great job of, of drawing out people and getting them engaged in the discussion. Well, thank you. Plus, I just like talking to you. I like talking to you, too. It's fun. Ginger, it was absolutely wonderful talking to you, as always. Pleasure to talk to you, too. We need to do another episode of Medic Mindset soon. That would be awesome. I would love that. Take care, Dr. Jarvis. See you, Ginger. And here's a reading of the portion of his article. You can hear the full article at emsworld.com. Preventing peri-intubation hypoxia. If peri-intubation hypoxia is common and harmful and predictable, well then how do we prevent it? Fortunately, the answer is not all that complex. Stop intubating hypoxic patients. It really is that simple. Now that doesn't imply not doing anything. It means you need to fix the problem first and then proceed with intubation. Frequently, this is a matter of taking simple steps to optimize pre-intubation saturation. EMS educator Jason Cook coined the term sexy bagging to describe several components of a pre-oxygenation toolbox. Sexy bagging is an acronym for the components of this toolbox. So the S stands for second provider, as in use a second provider when making a mask seal. E, 
stands for ear to sternal notch position. X stands for the extra stuff that's available to you, and Y stands for Yankauer suction, something you need to have nearby. Unfortunately, most EMTs and paramedics are not adequately trained and don't practice making a good face mask seal. We are all taught to use a one-handed EC clamp. Stop doing this. We should instead use the more effective two-handed thumbs-down seal where your fingers are lifting the mandible up into the mask while your thumbs, facing down toward the patient's feet, hold the seal. Take a look at figure two on the website to get a better picture for what I'm talking about. This two-handed seal delivers higher tidal volumes with less air leak than traditional one-handed method. All too often, when we realize we don't have an adequate seal, we simply press the mask down harder onto the patient's face. This is actually counterproductive. It presses the mandible posteriorly, inadvertently occluding the airway. Lift, don't push the mandible. If the patient needs assistance with ventilation, the second provider will provide these gentle ventilations while the first provider is making an effective mask seal. Proper positioning is key to effective ventilation, effective oxygenation, and effective intubation. While we often pride ourselves on being able to intubate patients in very difficult positions, we really shouldn't. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And just because we can do something in a lab doesn't mean we should do it in real life. Positioning is a perfect example of this. There's no law that says we must intubate the patient wherever and however we find them. Instead, move your patient into a position where you're more likely to succeed. Change your environment. For oxygenation, ventilation, and intubation, this means elevating the patient's head and placing them in an air to sternal notch position. Take a look at figure three on the website to see a good example of this. This ear to sternal notch position has the neck extended and the face parallel with the ceiling. The ear canal will be level with the sternal notch, hence ear to sternal notch position. Because we come prepared with all manner of equipment to aid our patients, we should use these extras, including lots of oxygen. While too much oxygen can clearly be harmful, this really doesn't apply when we're pre-oxygenating a patient. Give them as much oxygen as you can temporarily during the intubation, and then titrate down to the lowest fraction of inspired oxygen, or FiO2, necessary to meet your saturation goals. But do that after the intubation. Use two sources of oxygen, one for the BVM and another for a nasal cannula. Turn both sources up as high as the regulator will go. Often this is actually past the highest number on the dial. Using a nasal cannula under a BVM does two things. It provides an extra source of oxygen to further increase the FiO2, and most important, it allows you to easily transition to apneic oxygenation during the intubation attempt. Use waveform capnography before, during, and after the intubation attempt. In addition to confirming tube placement, the waveform can also be used as an indirect measure of tidal volume. We typically try to assess chest rise to judge the adequacy of our ventilations. However, because of large patient size, truly judging chest rise is often a bit of a crapshoot. Waveform capnography allows us to estimate tidal volume and is clearly the most sensitive and specific means of verifying E22 placement. Have a PEEP valve attached to your BVM. With PEEP attached and on in at least five centimeters of water, 
A BVM is perfectly capable of delivering oxygen without anyone squeezing the bag. So why is this important? Well, it's important because our goal is to avoid squeezing the BVM and spontaneously breathing patients with adequate tidal volumes. Squeezing that bag in these patients leads to increased intrathoracic pressure. That leads to decreased cardiac preload, lower blood pressure, and gastric insufflation of the stomach. All of these are bad. If you're still unable to achieve adequate saturations despite good tidal volume, maximal oxygen flow through two sources, a good seal, good positioning, and an adequate respiratory rate, then increase the PEEP. This often increases alveolar recruitment sufficiently to raise saturations. A common cause of failed airway attempts is secretions and vomit in the airway. Fortunately, we have suction for this, provided it is available and turned on. While we use the term yank hour synonymously with all suction catheters, we really shouldn't. Not all catheters are created equal. Yank hour catheters in particular have a small bore. We need to be using a large bore catheter for the industrial strength airway material we frequently encounter. Use all of these sexy bagging tricks in your toolbox to adequately pre-oxygenate your patient and prevent peri-intubation hypoxia. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this article and hundreds more like it at emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter and Facebook. And see you in New Orleans in October for EMS World Expo.